Hello and welcome. I am so incredibly excited to be talking to Dr. Casey Means tonight. She is, let's see, oops, Levels is joined. Casey, are you there? Let's see. Where did she go? Okay, wait. Casey, are you there? Yay, there she is. Hi, Jen, how are you? I am so great. Everyone, this is Dr. Casey Means, and it's kind of interesting. So the way that Casey and I first met, and do you want me to call you Casey or Dr. Means? I Casey is perfect. Okay, Casey. So the way we first met was Casey's mom followed Turtle Creek Lane. She was a big decorator, and she told Casey that she needed to follow Turtle mm -hmm. Creek Lane. And so she began following. Anyway, that's how we were able to get in contact with her when we were trying to get the monitor going, the CGM with the levels. And she has been incredibly kind, you guys. I just need to let you know right now the fact that she has let the Turtle Creek Lane community join before it's even released is just unbelievable because I have tried and tried and tried and tried and tried for so long to help people get these monitors because you know it requires a doctor's you know prescription and so we have been working on how to make this come together and anyway thank you so much for making that happen um one thing I'd like to say first tell us a little about your background and how you got started with levels and the interest in, you know, glucose and how it affects our insulin. Give us that background. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jen, for having me on. And yes, thanks to my mom for really connecting <laughs> us initially. And I have been such a big fan of everything you're doing um, for, for years now. And it's just so incredible to me how you have shared with your community all of this metabolic health knowledge on top of, of course, all the beautiful holiday decor uh, inspiration. And I am just so grateful for the message that you're spreading because obviously at Levels, we are all about spreading the word about metabolic health. It is our mission to reverse the metabolic disease epidemic by helping people understand their glucose levels. So me personally, I am trained as a medical doctor. Um, I did my training at Stanford and I teach there now. Um, and I actually went into head and neck surgery. So very, very specialized. I was doing surgery of the sinuses and the ears and sucking a lot of pus out of different orifices of the face and um, very, very, very subspecialized. And something that really occurred to me after about five years in that world is, wow, I'm super focused on these very sort of narrow parts of the, of the body, but I feel like I'm kind of missing the bigger picture of what is hurting Americans right now in terms of health and what the real elephant in the room of the modern American healthcare crisis is. And what that really is, is rooted in blood sugar problems. You know, right now, nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States are related to blood sugar problems. They're either directly caused by blood sugar problems or worsened by it. We've got 128 million Americans, half of all American adults right now have prediabetes or type two diabetes. And most of these cases are largely preventable. Um, 50 years ago, it was a fraction of this in terms of blood sugar problems that we had. And so, so what's happened? Why? Why are we suddenly so, I mean, was it the food pyramid? Was it, why are we like this? 
You know, I think it's a lot of systemic things that have happened. It's certainly not like our genetics have all changed in the past 50 years. This is environmental that's driving this huge increase. And, and, and it's multifactorial. Fundamentally, to have stable blood sugar levels, our metabolic machinery in the body needs to work properly. We need to convert fuel, which is like fat and glucose, to energy the body can use. And that process has really broken in the average American body right now. And the causes of that are multifactorial. Food is a huge one. It's foundational. And I think a big part of this is the huge increase in the ultra-refined processed carbohydrates and sugars that we're eating, of course. You know, high fructose corn syrup only came onto the scene in the 1970s. And now it's in the majority of the packaged foods in the grocery store. And this added sugar... Um, is everywhere. It's very hard to avoid. It's in our ketchup now. It's in our salad dressings. And the average American is probably eating um, somewhere between 60 and 150 pounds of added sugar per year. A couple hundred years ago, we were probably eating less than one pound. And so that is really gumming up our body's ability to convert fuel to energy properly. We're just overloading the system. So food is a big one. Um, of course, we also have cultures change in lots of other ways. We become much more sedentary, right? We used to be working with our hands more and, you know, um, out doing more physical labor. Now we're all on our computers. We're sitting for, you know, eight, 10 hours a day. We're getting less sleep than we've ever gotten before, which actually um, also hurts our metabolism, which is quite interesting. It actually creates um, problems with blood sugar when we lose just one or two nights of, of sleep. So I'm thinking about all those college kids out there who are pulling all-nighters, not knowing that it's actually creating blood sugar issues for them. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. So I, when you say that, that there's all this hidden sugar, so I, I could just tell you what happened to me today. I went out to lunch with a girlfriend, and I got what I thought was an incredibly healthy salad. It had um, hard-boiled egg, it had a little bit of bacon, it had some blue cheese. I thought it had chicken. I thought this is a great salad. I came home, I tested it about an hour later on my continuous glucose monitor, and I had spiked up to 140. Wow. And I thought, this is crazy. I would have never known that I had eaten something with all that hidden sugar had I not tested it on my CGM. So explain to them what a CGM does. Because yeah. I know for me, I didn't start wearing a CGM to lose weight. Steve's dad died, uh, my husband's dad died of Alzheimer's and we became very, very focused. And that was when we learned what you just said, that, that you know, the diseases, the major diseases are caused because we become insulin resistant. And so when we learned that, at that point, I was completely addicted to sugar. I am embarrassed to say I ate about a quarter of a gallon of ice cream every single day of my life for lunch. It was really kind of bad. And when I was coming off of that sugar, it was horrific. I was just, I, I wanted it so badly. And that was when I realized sugar is dangerous because I, and then I started doing all this research into to process foods and carbohydrates and refine and how refined it is. But anyway, so yes, explain to them about this CGM and why it's become so important to you and really should be to everyone. Absolutely. So first of all, that story about your lunch is so prescient. You know, you eat this salad that you think is going to be great for your blood sugar, lots of protein, lots of healthy fats, lettuce, and then you spike up to 140. And just for context for people listening, 
we really recommend not really spiking above like 110 milligrams per deciliter. Above that, you're starting to really get into high ranges. And so having a continuous glucose monitor is really a superpower because it lets you see what's happening and really test these predictions. You thought it was going to go well, but it didn't. And then it lets you have this closed feedback loop to examine what was it about that salad that was the problem. And, you know, very likely it might've been the dressing. There might've been some hidden sugar in the dressing and other people, for other people, it might be dried cranberries or croutons or something they're not thinking about. That's really just kind of thwarting the meal. So a continuous glucose monitor is a tiny device. You wear it on the back of your arm. Probably many people listening have seen you wear this and show it off. Um, and it basically is testing your blood sugar every 15 minutes, 24 hours a day in the background, sending that information to your smartphone and letting you see exactly how the food you're eating and the lifestyle choices you're making are affecting your blood sugar in real time so that you can start to make these personalized decisions for yourself about how to keep blood sugar levels more stable, which is ultimately what we want to do. And something that you bring up that I think is really important is that this was your response to the salad. And what's fascinating and that what we've learned in the research over the last few years is that different people may actually have a totally different blood sugar response to that same food, to that same salad. And so while you might've spiked to 140, I might've spiked to 180, or I might've spiked to 90, even if we ate the exact same thing. And one of the big factors that the research has shown is that microbiome composition actually might have a big deterministic factor of how people process the food. And so what is a good blood sugar choice for you might not be for me. And that's why having a device like this to really test things out and test different variations of the meal, you know, test that salad again with a homemade dressing, see if it just totally flattens the curve. That's where there's a lot of, a lot of power. Um, well, and I love the, something that I love that's new to the levels app and things that I have tested for myself. is like, I know if I fat load, before I have, you know, a meal, often that will keep my glucose down. If I go for a walk directly after I have what I might think, you know, had some glucose in it, or if I'll take some apple cider vinegar and those different tests, so you can actually become very, very individualized. Cause like one thing that will spike Steve often doesn't spike me or vice versa. And so we can test and to where we become so incredibly educated on our own bodies. I mean, now since I've been doing this about two years, I can almost predict exactly what's going to happen when I eat certain foods. Now today, I went to a salad place that I've only been to one other time, and this was a new dressing I'd never tried before, and now I know that is not a dressing I can have. I'll bring my own dressing with me next time when I go, you know? And so I love the fact that I can do this so individualized because, you know, you, you are often different than other people, but you know, I think it's important too, if people don't want to wear a glucose monitor, there are things that they can do kind of across the board, like what you said, you know, with um, going for a walk yeah. right after you eat. Talk, talk about some of the things that people could do if they didn't want to have a continuous glucose monitor. Yeah, what's really neat about this emerging trend of a lot of people wearing these glucose monitors is that we're starting to learn in the population data what actually works to stabilize glucose levels pairing that with the research as well and can make a lot of sort of general recommendations for people that can be helpful in keeping blood sugar stable. And um, someone asked, a, a couple people asked a question in here of like, oh my gosh, you guys both are healthy. Like, why are you checking the glucose all the time? And so I, I, I'll circle back to that question after. So that's a great question. Um, but 
you know, some of the things that people can do is like you said, take a walk after a meal. We've actually done a great experiment with Levels members where we had everyone get two 12 ounce cans of Coca-Cola. So about 35, 40 grams of sugar. I know, I know. Uh, this is the first Coke I drank in about 20 years. And one day they would drink it on its own and just sort of sit and proceed with their day. And then the next day under very similar circumstances, so fasted and having a similar amount of sleep and all that stuff, they would walk for you know, half hour after the Coke. And we actually found about a 30% decrease in the glucose peak after the Coke just by taking a gentle stroll. Um, the peak glucose went from 162 on average to 132. So that, that is an appreciable difference. So that's a big one. Um, like you said, pairing foods properly. So not eating naked carbohydrates, just a carb all on its own. Pair it with fat, protein, and fiber. These are other things that can slow the digestion. Um, they can make it so that you actually don't even absorb. Fiber actually blocks some of the glucose absorption. So if I'm gonna eat a potato now, I'm gonna drizzle some tahini on it, which is some nice fat and protein. I'm gonna put some chia seeds or flax seeds on top so that I get a little bit of fiber. And it's gonna really change the way that I process that glucose. So similar with a piece of fruit, you know, an apple with some almond butter and chia seeds or a piece of cheese is going to be a very different glucose response than the apple on its own. There's other adjuncts people can do like actually oddly enough, vinegar um, is a insulin sensitizer. So vinegar before a meal, taking a couple shots of like apple cider vinegar in a glass of water can actually stabilize the glucose response a little bit. And that's been shown in quite a bit of research. If you eat it before like a piece of bread or a high carb meal, it can stabilize glucose. Um, you mentioned one that's really important, which is food sequencing, which is actually eating the fat and protein before the carbs. So unfortunately at restaurants, we have this all backwards. We're like bread first they and chips bread, first. And, and it's like- up for the whole night. Just tell them, bring this back at the end of the meal or never. Um, but what really the ideal situation would be like, a big plate of roughage, like greens, you know, non-starchy greens with protein. So like tofu, egg, chicken, get that protein and that roughage in your belly first. Then when the entree comes, you know, eat the protein first, shrimp, chicken, whatever it is, then maybe eat some of the vegetables, the asparagus, whatever, then, and only then go for the potatoes or whatever else is on the plate. And that's actually going to be a very different response for a lot of people than if you ate you know, the potatoes or the bread or whatever at the beginning of the meal. So food sequencing, another one. And then the last two I'll mention is just, um, you know, sleep, sleep and, and stress management. This, is, this has been really interesting to learn more about. When you're sleep deprived, your glucose levels are going to be more erratic. Um, and, and sleep really, in a way, breaks the body. Sleep deprivation kind of breaks the body's ability to process energy properly. And so there's been some fascinating research where you take a group of young, healthy, robust boys with basically no glucose problems, no blood sugar problems, and you sleep deprive them for about a week to just four hours of sleep per night. And they go from totally healthy to pre-diabetic, essentially in that short wow. period of time. And it's reversible when they get better sleep, but that's what sleep deprivation. So, you know, if I'm going to be eating more of the higher carb foods, I'm going to make sure it's on a day that I'm resourced in terms of my sleep. And ideally also getting some good exercise or movement in that day, because that movement and that exercise is basically just this incredible way of priming my muscles to take up lots of glucose. So instead of it just sitting in the bloodstream and potentially excess turning to fat, which is what glucose does when we have too much of it, 
um, I'm going to actually take it up in the muscles and use it. It's a sink for it. So that's a big one. And then stress is the last one. We know that acute stressors raise blood sugar. And this is independent of food. This is actually a evolutionarily adaptive response where when the body thinks there's a stress or a threat, which in the past might've been like, we're being chased by a lion or something like that. These days it's more like we get an email that bugs us or like someone's honking at us. We're not actually having a physical threat, but it's more of a psychological threat. Well, the body doesn't know the difference and the body still reacts by mobilizing energy from your liver into the bloodstream to fight that threat. So as we're getting these little pings of stress throughout the day, our liver is literally dumping glucose into the bloodstream and raising our blood sugar. So really tuning into how can I keep my body in a sense of calm and lack of, you know, threat, because that's going to have a big impact on our metabolism. So that can be as simple as, okay, I get an email that kind of activates me a little bit, take a big, deep diaphragmatic breath, calm the body, tell it it's safe. And, you know, and, and what's interesting about wearing a CGM is that with that feedback, you can actually see that sometimes that really helps, or you can see that a big stressor causes a glucose response, but you certainly don't need a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor to, to implement a lot of these, um, these practices that are, that are going to be useful really across the board. Well, you brought us something really um, important that I want you to discuss just a little bit. So I have found since I've been wearing this glucose monitor the last two years, I've cut out you know, all sugars, you know, white sugar, brown sugar, any types of sugar um, other than like stevia or erythritol. And then I've cut out white flour as well, mm -hmm. refined carbohydrates. I have found my moods have been so much more even. I found anxiety has just almost completely gone away. I sleep better. So talk about how cutting out these refined carbohydrates affect us emotionally. Oh, it's such, this is a topic I'm so passionate about. And it really feeds into what I would say are kind of three of the main reasons why we really want to care about glucose. And this speaks to, even if we don't have diabetes or prediabetes, like we're just way before that, why would someone really care? And so the first one has a lot to do with what you're talking about. So um, when we have a big blood sugar spike, what it's going to be followed by generally is a crash. So it goes up and the body releases all this insulin, which is the hormone that helps you take the sugar out of the bloodstream. And when you have that big glucose spike, the body kind of overshoots and kind of overcompensates and you crash. Mm -hmm. And that's that notorious post-meal crash. You know, this is a lot of people feel lethargic after a meal or something like that. But what the research has really shown is that during that post-meal crash, people often will feel anxiety or moodiness lethargy, fatigue, brain fog, poor fact recall. Um, and so this is like having a significant effect on our bodies. And when you think about the fact that, you know, glucose is a fuel substrate for energy in the body, if it's a rig roller coaster, you're going to feel that roller coaster. So by just learning to eat in such a way and utilize lifestyle tools in such a way that you're keeping that more of a, a gentle rolling hills throughout the day, many people find that that translates into more stability in the subjective experience of their day, more stable mood, more stable energy, more stable cognitive function. So similar to you, that has been a total unlock for me. It really feels like a superpower. And that is something I'm so 
grateful for. So that's kind of the short-term effects. And I think another thing to remember is that the brain is one of the most glucose-hungry organs in our entire body. It's a small part of the body, but uses about 20% of the energy in the body. So if we're doing anything that impairs the um, creation of that fuel-to-energy process in the body, um, that is going to have a huge, huge effect on the brain. And so we've, it's actually been shown that people with metabolic disease, so this is like type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes, issues, you know, clinical issues with blood sugar have like twice the high, twice as high a rate of depression and anxiety as people without blood sugar problems. And then of course, um, people with overt blood sugar issues like diabetes are at significantly higher rates of developing Alzheimer's dementia and other neurodegenerative diseases over the long term. Because again, the brain is an energy hungry organ. And if you can't get the properly get the energy, get the brain, the energy it needs, we're going to have dysfunction. And that can look like all sorts of neurologic symptoms. So in the short term, it can be that roller coaster and that energy and mood lability. But over the long term, these processes um, can really lead to some of the more severe um, neurologic issues. So that's, that's kind of like the first big one I would talk about is like the, the reason why someone who doesn't have prediabetes or diabetes should care about glucose is because it helps you figure out how to eat so you can get off the glucose roller coaster. Well, and this, I, okay, people, yeah. people tend to think that, you know, like for me, you know, Alzheimer's is just something that you get when you're really old. And what people need to understand is, no, it's not like a light switch. You just don't suddenly have Alzheimer's one day. No, decades before you've been eating things that have caused that glucose to spike so many times and the insulin's coming and you become insulin resistant and that's what's led to the Alzheimer's. And so if any of you are sitting back, you're thinking, oh, you know, I'm not old, I won't get Alzheimer's. No, it's kind of like Botox. If you get Botox, you know, when you're 70, it's too late. The wrinkles right. are all there and it's done. You know, yep. and I, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to promote Botox. I'm just saying it's something that you need with Alzheimer's that you've got to be careful with these glucose, you know, um, spikes, because that is what is causing Alzheimer's later on in your life. So it's not just for somebody that's a light switch and you get old and you get it. Yeah. So I think I it's think important to remember. It is. And I actually think some of these like warning signs like, oh yeah, my energy is really all over the place. Or I do feel really like a crash after a meal, or I have severe cravings after a meal. That's a big, uh, cravings is also a big um, thing that we see in that post meal crash. That's when people want more sugar to bring that sugar up. These types of, you know, low grade symptoms that honestly, a lot of us have just accepted as like a normal part of American life. Now they're, they're not normal. You know, we should be feeling great all day. And so I think it's important to really realize that some of these little pain points actually are sort of portending things down the road. Like we want to get on top of it now so that we're not developing that compounding damage. We may not have the diagnosis of type two diabetes or Alzheimer's, which is going to be decades down the road, but now is the time to learn to eat and live properly in terms of blood sugar so that we don't, you know, push the, the wagon down that, that road. And, and that really brings up um, the, the physiology that I think is so important for people to sort of recognize, which is what you're talking about, which is that as we spike our glucose over and over and over again, we're also spiking our insulin over and over and again, because of course that's the hormone that's released to take the blood sugar out of the bloodstream and into the cells. And when we repeatedly hit that insulin, you know, tell the body, 
we need insulin, we need insulin, we need insulin. And the body's constantly have to spiking, having to spike it because we're on that glucose roller coaster. The body actually responds by becoming numb to that signal. It's like, oh my God, you're asking us to drive all this glucose into the cells. The cells can't handle this. And the cells kind of protect themselves by blocking the insulin signal and saying like, there's no more room in the end for glucose, like stop. So what the body does, because the body's smart, is it's like, well, we're just going to produce more insulin from the pancreas to drive that, um, to drive that glucose into the cells. So now you get what we call hyperinsulinemia, high insulin levels, compensatory for this insulin resistance. And then over time, as this just continues, the cell becomes less and less able to drive that glucose in. And now we not only see post-meal spikes, but we just see glucose rising at baseline, like our morning glucose and our just sort of average levels. And that's that pathway towards type 2 diabetes and, and prediabetes. And there's a couple interesting ramifications about this. First, insulin's only job is not just to get glucose out of the bloodstream. It has lots of other effects in the body. So for instance, one of its effects is to actually block fat burning because we basically have two main sources of energy in the body, glucose or fat, both can be converted to energy. But if glucose is always around and always present and therefore insulin is high, it's a signal to the body. We don't need to tap into our fat stores, which is kind of our long-term storage, like sort of our, our battery. It's like, we've got glucose. We don't need to burn fat. So insulin, another one of its jobs is to say, don't burn fat. We've got enough glucose. So of course, for the 72% of American adults now who are dealing with overweight or obesity, this is really important to know about. Insulin is this hormone that has an effect on that, on what, um, what sort of bank of energy we're tapping from to get our, our fuel. And so that's a big one. A second one to remember is that insulin is, it's an anabolic hormone. It's a pro-growth hormone. It tells the body to store fat, to convert that to not burn fat. So it's a growth type of hormone. So that has actually implications for a lot of other conditions. We know that high insulin levels can potentially um, drive cancer growth. You know, they will, they will exacerbate cell growth in that situation. Um, another one is, and this one's kind of interesting, many people don't make this link, but the leading cause of infertility in the United States is polycystic ovarian syndrome. Number one cause of infertility and infertility rates are going up. And this, we now understand, is actually in part a result of excess insulin stimulating the ovaries to make testosterone and create menstrual irregularities that lead to infertility. So again, looping back into the insulin picture, um, there's, so there's many other issues with insulin being high, which again, feeds in part back to the constant glucose spiking. And so if we can figure out how to kind of get that under control and have more of those gentle rolling hills and therefore gentle rolling insulin and kind of get off that pathway of insulin resistance, we're doing a lot to protect our whole body from the effect of hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance, aside from just, um, you know, ideally not going down the trajectory towards type two diabetes. Well, you know, and it's, it's interesting because I know that there are a lot of factors that cause, you know, let's say Alzheimer's or PCOS or diabetes or, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and so with the various factors, there's only so much we can control. Like for example, Steve has one of the genes for Alzheimer's and there's nothing we can do about that. He has it in his body, but we can control 
his glucose levels, his insulin, you know? And so, yes, there are a lot of factors that lead to these different and various diseases, and some of them are genetic, but we certainly can control what we can control. And I know for me, if I can get off of sugar, oh my gosh, I think anyone could get off of sugar because I was so addicted, but I can't tell you how much better I feel. And I don't even really want it anymore. You know, I'll see it and I'll think, oh, that might be fun, you know, at a birthday party to have a, a bite of the cake or have one of the donuts at my birthday party, you know, but, but my body doesn't really want it anymore. And that is unbelievable to me. So anybody out there who decides like, I want to go off of sugar and white flour, those are the two things, let's just try that first. Give yourself a good three weeks. It's gonna mm. be a nightmare. You're gonna be, <laughs> you're, you're gonna probably be a little bit grumpy, but oh my goodness, after that, you just feel so much better. Your moods are so much more stable and I, I, at least I feel like if someday I get Alzheimer's or Steve gets Alzheimer's, we know we did everything we possibly could, mm. in, you know, and that's very comforting to me to, to, you know, feel like, okay, if it happens, it happens now, but it wasn't because, uh, that I, that I wasn't doing everything that I could to prevent it. Mm. So I think that's such an important message, Jen, like, you know, like you said, diseases are multifactorial. There are many things that go into them, but in many ways, the conventional dogma has been like, these things just happen to us and they're diseases of old age. And there's some truth to that. There's parts we can't control, but we should be focusing intently on the parts we can control and set ourselves up for success, not only because it may help us prevent these debilitating chronic illnesses down the road, but because it also makes us feel better now, you know, now, it's, 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 now. It's, and that is so, so, I mean, it, it makes us look and feel good better now. And so I think, um, you know, it's not just about, it, it's, it's like the long-term investment really motivates me for sure. But then exactly like you said, the unlock of just feeling better now, the more stable energy and mood, not having the sugar cravings. And I've had a very similar experience to you. I used to be the one who was always making sure I had a fun size candy in my bag. Like always wanted, just would honestly like feel panicked if I didn't know where my next sugar, you know, thing was going to come from. And I spent a lot of my life that way. And similar to you, the brain changes, you know, the, the hormonal cues and the, the hunger signals, the reward circuitry, it changes when you get off this stuff. And, um, and one of the things I love about continuous glucose monitoring is that it brings some awareness in about where these foods that have sugar in them are really having a strong impact. So like one thing we've learned, for instance, in our data set is that Skittles actually have the highest glucose spike of any food in our entire population across 50 million glucose data points. And so for someone who, for instance, like you know, they're like, I like Skittles, but you know, I, they're, I don't like, they're not my favorite thing in the entire world, but I eat them when they're around. It's like knowing that information might push them to be like, actually, like, I'm not going to eat that and maybe eat something that's much lower down on the list of glucose spikes. So, um, having that type of data can just really help make, um, help you prioritize like where you're gonna kind of, kind of make your choices. And so, so that's one of the 
the things that we've really uh, been interested to see emerge out of sort of the more population level data. Mm-hmm. Well, what's really interesting to me, so my two kids that are still at home, Sam and McKenna Kate, I, I've educated them on all of this and they have really picked up on it themselves because I, I want them to be kids. I want them to enjoy being a child, but we've also really educated them and they both are on their own, extremely careful about, about what they eat. And McKenna Kate said to me today, like she was going to her last dance class and she said, everybody's bringing desserts tonight. And she said, what could I take that I could eat that would still be fun? And so we talked about it and we did some hand dipped strawberries in chocolate that was just Steve, was just had stevia as the sweetener. It was fabulous. And she felt so much better going to her dance class with mm. a simple tray of, you know, hand dipped strawberries. And I thought, you know what, what a gift that she understands at a young age what sugar and refined hydrates mm. do to her body. And for both of my kids, when they went off refined carbohydrates, their skin cleared up. And I was actually, explain why, and we're getting a little bit long here, but explain why going off of these refined carbohydrates affects the skin the way that it does. Oh my gosh. This is one of my favorite topics. I'll try and keep it brief, okay. but you know, skin is like the largest organ in our body, right? And so it's going to reflect a lot of what's going on inside, inside the body. And so with acne, and, and this, is, this is one that we actually know a lot in the research about. So we know that blood sugar, high blood sugar, and high insulin levels directly contribute to um, acne lesions. And the reason for this is because uh, sugar, of course, stimulates insulin, but it also stimulates a hormone called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor one. And the hair follicles of the skin on the face or all over the body have what's called sebaceous glands, which are oil producing glands. And remember I said earlier, insulin is a pro-growth hormone. It's an anabolic hormone. And one of the things that it can do is actually bind to receptors on these oil producing glands and make them grow and actually become bigger. So you've got these bigger oil producing glands in the hair follicles pumping out more oil. And that is one of the contributing uh, factors in acne. So if you can get the sugar down, get the IGF-1 and insulin down, you can actually make these sebaceous glands smaller, less oil production, less acne. And there's been research showing that 12 weeks of a low glycemic diet has a significant, statistically significant impact on acne lesions in people who go on this diet. So that is just so powerful because right now, so many young people are going on a slew of heavy duty medications to manage their acne. I was on every single one of them. And now I'm just like, ah, oh. so, you know, one spironolactone, a literally a diuretic that acts, you know, that, that affects your, kidneys. I was on it for years. years. It's like kids are on this without ever being told that maybe, you know, reduce the sugar. Um, of course, like there's Accutane, which can cause birth defects, birth control pills, which of course have a big impact on women's you know, hormones, antibiotics, which can disrupt the microbiome and have effects on mental health. And so I always say to people, and I try and preach this from the rooftops, try dietary factors before, you know, doing these medications. And by that, I mean a really low glycemic diet to eliminate the added sugars and added refined and and refined carbohydrates. And then actually there's some evidence showing that minimizing dairy, because it's also a stimulant of IGF-1 can also have an impact on dairy. So that's what I tell 
people um, and certainly in my practice. And then the other skin one that is fascinating is that glucose actually has an impact on wrinkles. And this one I love because as someone who spent a lot of money on, you know, topical things, learning this was a real unlock for me. And the mechanism is fascinating. So collagen is the most abundant protein in the body, actually. It's what gives our skin its turgor and our, um, you know, its, uh, you know, suppleness. And when excess sugar in the bloodstream goes into the tissues, it binds to things. And this is a process called glycation. So glycation is glucose sticking to things. And one of the things it sticks to is collagen. And when glucose sticks to collagen, instead of collagen being in these nice linear fibrils, it cross-links and it becomes sort of jagged. And it will also stick to other things around the cells and the extracellular matrix. So now you've got this sort of disorganized structure. It, and when collagen is cross-linked, it makes it less likely to be degraded and turned over. So you've got this collagen that's basically dysfunctional and unable to get turned over. And that can be reflected in wrinkles. And in in vitro studies, so this is not in humans, but in cell culture, it's been shown that if you reduce um, glucose levels and reduce the the glucose solution the cells are in, glycation actually can be reduced by like 25% of the collagen. And so um, anecdotally, no hard science to, to support this. We've heard a lot of people say that their skin actually, they feel like it gets quite a bit better in lots of different ways um, when they get their blood sugar and insulin under control. So those are two, acne and wrinkles are two, but actually across the board, a lot of skin conditions are heavily related to blood sugar. Autoimmune skin conditions like psoriasis, um, there's actually a very strong link to metabolic dysfunction. And then of course, another thing to remember is that high blood sugar is a trigger of inflammation. And a lot of skin conditions are inflammatory in nature, things like eczema, and so, you know, redness and heat, these are, these are inflammatory responses. And so anything we can do in the body to reduce our sort of global burden of chronic inflammation is good. And one of the things that we can do is keep blood sugar spikes down because a big spike um, is a direct signal to the body to upregulate inflammatory molecules. So that's another one of the reasons kind of circling back to that list of reasons why, you know, young otherwise healthy people should care about this is because we want to keep that inflammation as low as possible and keeping spikes down can help with that. Well, thank you so much, Casey, for giving us all of this information. And I know I have learned a lot. I thought I knew a lot, but boy, I have learned a whole lot more. And maybe this is something that we could do in the future as there are other questions. And, and one thing I would just really like to say and, and make it super clear is that this is not something that you do because you have an eating disorder or because you are just trying, you know, I mean, maybe there are a lot of people that do want to lose weight for our family. That is not the case that we, we definitely realize that the world as it is today, and especially in North America, something is happening and people are getting sicker and sicker and sicker and 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 we're getting more and more diseased and, and and i come from a very medical background we have four mds in my family and as i as i talked with them i just really tried to figure out what is happening <sighs> and i i have found that within the medical field a lot of times they want to um treat the problem yes and i want to never have the problem and so I feel like 
if we can do everything in our power and and is wearing a glucose monitor going to solve every problem in your life and your kids you know kumbaya from that point on no and that's not what either of us are saying but what we are saying is this is something that we can do right here right now that we think could have a positive effect on our lives for many 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 you know decades and I just appreciate you coming on, educating us. And I will say to all of you TCL followers, there was such a huge response to the glucose monitors that we need to put a hold on that. Remember I told you I didn't think it was gonna work for all of us to get it, but we're gonna be giving it, we're gonna give that link tonight because we're overwhelming um, this team with how many people requested the glucose monitors. So we're gonna give it a few days, let it die down, just get all the orders out that we did so far. And then I will give you that link list again if you decide to do it. And like I said, there are other things that you could do, just cutting out white flour and white sugar. That right there- It's like 80% of the battle. Yeah. Huge <laughs> difference in your life. You don't have to wear a glucose monitor, but if it's something that you want to do, for me, I absolutely enjoy wearing it. I love seeing what different foods, it's so interesting to me. But you don't have to do that to be healthy. But boy, if you're gonna start anywhere, cut out white flour, cut out white sugar, and just see how you feel. Because I, I have a feeling that your life will at least be a little bit better. And I know inside it will be a lot better with your gut health and everything else that's going on. For me, it was definitely my moods, my energy, my sleep. I saw a huge difference. And yes, it didn't happen overnight. It was as I looked back, you know, a couple of months to three or four, or even, you know, five, six months later, and I thought, wow, as I look back, I really do see that difference. But it doesn't happen overnight. It's like a, you know, a sudden light switch. But slowly over time, as you get off, it, you know, you swing that pendulum. I mean, I was 20 years on sugar, so addicted to sugar. I'm not going to get back in, you know, two weeks. No, it's going to take me a little mm. while. But you do get back, and you just think, wow. I feel so much better. So thank you, thank you, oh. thank you. And was there one question that you wanted to answer that you said you saw? No, I think we got to it. We got sort to of it. the question of like why someone who's otherwise healthy should focus on this. And I think I think we were able to talk about that in good detail. And I just I am so grateful for you spreading this message. I think what you said about wanting to really get to the root cause and not just react to symptoms, that is the crux of our mission, my personal mission as a physician, our mission at Levels is like, we now are so fortunate with the science to know that so many of the chronic diseases and the symptoms we're facing today are connected. They're connected by this core dysfunctional physiology and there's something we can do about that. So in, you know, we're sort of trained to think that everything is separate and all these diseases are totally separate silos, but really, um, we're learning more and more that they're connected by this root cause physiology, not a hundred percent, but it's a very clear factor involved in lots of them. And that's an actionable factor. And so um, it's really fun to think about like, let's pull up this weed by the roots, not just, you know, chop off the, the top of it. And, and in doing so potentially help affect many different areas of our lives in like one one fell swoop. So that's, I love, thank, I'm so grateful to be on that, that same mission with you. And thank you for sharing this, this uh, information. Super. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining everyone. Bye. Bye.